ask you a quick question. And that question is, are you a people pleaser? And I, I know that can be a loaded question in our culture today, so I'm not asking you to out yourself if you shamelessly kiss up to your boss or someone who has, uh, can bring advantage to your life. Uh, by asking that question, I'm also not asking if you, your sense of value is rooted in whether or not other people approve of you. Uh, I, I'm not asking if uh, you spend far too much time being concerned about what other people think about you. Okay, that, that's not what I mean by that question. What I mean by, are you a people pleaser, is do you like to bring people joy, right? Are you genuinely someone who likes to please people? See, that's a much nicer way to think of it when I ask it that way, right? Um, one of life's greatest blessings is to be able to bring others joy, to do them good, to bring blessing and fulfillment to them, for them to experience that and to flourish in that. Now, as important and as human as that is, I want to ask you an even more important question this morning. Do you want to please God? Now, if you are a Christian, that is a really important question to ask, isn't it? It's a very question, important question to think about. Do you want to please God? If you are exploring Christianity, do you want to know what pleases God? Do we as a church want to be a church that pleases God? If we do, then what Timothy or what Paul has to write to us today in Timothy 2 is something we really need to pay attention to because you notice in verse 3 what Paul says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Do we want to please God? Wanting to genuinely please people is good. Genuinely pleasing God is better by far. And the good news is this morning, we don't have to choose. Sometimes as a Christian, you do have to make that choice. Today's not one of those times. We can do both according to what we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 8. Now, before we dive into the study of our text, we've been in Timothy, I think this is probably our fifth, fifth message in it, so that you don't lose the forest for the trees. Let me back up just a moment so we can get a sense of what is going on. We know by now uh, Paul has clearly made his argument of the book very clear to young Timothy. We saw in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul's passionate plea. He says, Timothy, I urge you to remain back back in Ephesus so that people cannot teach different doctrine. Timothy, basically the idea was as the church is the pillar and buttress of truth, guard the gospel message of his life-giving, life-transforming message of mercy and grace. Don't let it be hijacked. Don't let it be compromised. Do not let it be diluted. Now that he made that really clear, Paul begins to pivot in chapter 2 and 3 where he begins to, to talk about the way the, the corporate life of the church is to be ordered. Now, hold on. When I say that Paul's pivoting to talk about the way the, the, the corporate life of the church to be ordered, I'm not saying by that that now, now we're going to talk about how our corporate services should be run, like how long a service ought to be, what kind of music we should play, what kind of donuts we serve out in the courtyard. Um, do we do traditional offering plates or we do like text to give smartphone apps? That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I, I can see how that would be a very, very boring sermon, quite frankly. What, what Paul is talking about is not the forms of the church, but the function of the church. So when Paul is concerned in chapters 2 and 3 about the way our corporate lives are ordered, it's not about those forms, which, which few of us should be concerned with. It is about the function which every one of us should be concerned with. What is the church 
you and I, what are we supposed to be about? Who should lead this amazing God-ordained institution? What are its priorities? How do the relationships within it reflect the God who created it? What is the end game? How do we finish well? What is the game plan? That's something we all should be concerned about if you are a Christian. Now, we know this is exactly what Paul had in mind, thankfully, because he makes it very clear. Look at me with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, when he says, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. That's who he's writing to. But I am writing these things, all that's within this epistle, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So furthermore, we know Paul is advancing his overall argument in this letter because he again urges Timothy in the same way he did at the beginning of this epistle. I'll remind you again of chapter 1 and verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, that word urge, he repeats the same verb, the same command, almost in the first sentence of chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And Paul begins here with chapter 2. We'll look at just one half of chapter 2 this morning. We'll pick up the second half next week. He begins to advance his argument by teaching how men and women will function in this pillar and buttress of the truth known as the church. And it starts with something very important. It starts with being about the thing that God is about. I'd say that that is pretty important if we're going to be a church, to be about the thing that God is about, and that begins at a very important and practical place by prayer. Now, I need to be clear on this, that it's not talking about prayer as if prayer inherently is and in of itself the thing that we should be about, but it is hard to miss that prayer, more than anything else in your Christian life, do reveal the priorities and perspective that's often in your heart and mind. And so while the theme, the idea is wrapped around prayer, the discipline of prayer, what this is really about is getting on page with the priorities and perspectives of God, which prayer wonderfully reveals to us. So in these eight verses, what we are going to see is the focus of our prayers, verses 1 and 2. What, what ought we be focused on of, of the many things that there are to pray about? What's the Bible teach us we should focus on? Secondly, the fuel of our prayers. What, what ought to motivate the things that we're focused on? And finally, the foundation. What makes all this kind of work together well? I think this can be a very encouraging study for you. I think many times, if you are a Christian, we often get socialized into our spiritual disciplines, and by that I mean we just kind of pick things up by being around other people, and that works great most of the times. Sometimes it's not so good, because what we don't want is our social context to develop our understanding of how we are to live as Christians. We want God's Word to do that. So I find in a place like prayer, which is often something we can socialize ourselves into, it's good to see what God's Word teaches us about prayer, because it's so important. Well, let's look at them one at a time. The focus of our prayers, verse 1 and 2. 
Paul begins by instructing these Christians what they should do, for who should they do it, and how they go about it. And what does he say? I urge that you pray. Now, let's just stop right there. First of all, if, 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 if you want to make any Christian feel guilty, what do we ask them about? <laughs> Their prayer life, right? Because if they're going to be honest, if they're anything like me, they never feel like they are praying enough, and they never feel like they're praying uh, or they're very good at it. Praying with other people can be helpful, but it still can be tough. One way Paul seeks to help us out is that he widens the scope of what our prayers ought to be about, and he urges for supplications, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, let's be clear here. He's not giving us a checklist for you to pray by. So, did I get my thanksgiving right? Did I get that first? Is my, is my ratio and proportion to petitions and supplications balanced out? That's not what he's doing here. That's not what he's getting at. Rather, he's making a broader point that all sorts of prayer be made for all sorts of people. In fact, all people. Pray all kinds of prayers for all people. In other words, friends, Paul's intention is that the church go big with its prayers. We see that here in his opening phrase, first of all, then. There's a lot of things he wants to talk about, but the primary thing, the first of all the things, is we got to be a church to be about, in order to be the kind of church we should be, we should know what we're supposed to be about. We have to be about all people. Very important. This isn't simply just for Timothy, but for the whole church, the whole church at Ephesus that's reading this epistle. The whole church should be concerned about the whole world, all people. Now, this may seem very obvious, but it's very easy to forget this, especially so often we hear about things like the American church or the Asian church, or the Anglican church, or the Slavic church, or the intellectual church, or the uh, seeker church, or the hipster church, the first thing we have to remember, Paul says, is that every church is for all people. Friend, if you are here and you are looking for a church to be a part of, and um, you are blessed, there's a lot of great churches you can choose from, but if you are looking for a church, be careful not to find a church that is for a certain kind of person right? You may like the surfer church, but I hope they have a burden for more than surfers. You may like the intellectual church, but I hope they have a passion for more than just their minds. You may be politically minded, but I hope you had a church that's more than just talking about politics from the pulpit. Find a church that is concerned about being a church for all kinds of people. The church after all, is not a demographic market slice, but all the people that God calls from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and ethnicity. And the way we begin, the way we remember this is in our prayer lives. The church is for all people. We pray for all people, not just your people. Friends, one subset of people that Paul does tend to zero in on. We see that in verse 2. One subset of all the people that Paul specifically mentions, kings, rulers, and those in high positions. We are to pray for them, not just complain about them. Can we be honest? If, If we were to know our internal thoughts, I would wonder if we pray as much for our politicians and our Congress and our president as we complain about them. 
I don't know about you, but I've looked in the original Greek, and I can't find one verse that says I ought to complain about these people. But we are to pray for them. Do you think it was any easier for these Christians in the first century? Certainly not, if you know anything about their context. If you may not know, who was the, the, the ruler, the emperor of the time was a man named Nero, possibly one of the cruelest emperors Rome ever had. He was actually, ironically, one of the most popular emperors, partly because of his cruelty as well. He was rumored to have caused the great Roman fire, the great fire of Rome in July 18, 18 that burned down a, a, a humongous section of the city of Rome. It's rumored that he started it. What's not rumored, it's certainly true that he punished the Christians and blamed them for the fire, having them lit up as human torches at his galas and parties as punishment for that crime. Paul says, pray for Nero. Thankfully, not all rulers, not all those in high positions were like Nero. As a matter of fact, if you're a note taker, write down Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 records how Paul himself in this very city of Ephesus was protected from an angry mob by none other than the ruling authorities and those in high positions. You recall as Paul was founding the church in Ephesus that he is now later writing to, that Timothy is now pastoring, people were coming to Christ and many people were abandoning their worship of Artemis of the Ephesians and worshiping Jesus the Christ. And whenever a revival takes place, there's going to be an economic impact. So all the silversmiths, all the blacksmiths got together and said, friends, all of our countrymen are abandoning their God, Artemis of the Ephesians, let her be praised forever, and are turning to this false God, Jesus. Now, it sounds pretty pious, but the reality was they stopped buying their little idols. And so their economic livelihood was now threatened. The solution was to basically beat Paul and run him out of the city or to murder him or whatever it might be. And it would have happened if it wasn't for governing rulers and people in high positions of power stopping them off. So Paul knows firsthand that when those in authority govern well, guess what happens, friends? The gospel is given an opportunity to flourish and grow. Paul makes that direct connection here. Now, honestly, as we look at what he has, says here, the reason we should pray for our leaders, he says, is that we may lead quiet, dignified lives. And I'll be honest, the younger you are, the, the less interesting that payoff sounds. The older you are, the more you like that payoff. But we've got to put this in the broader context of what Paul's talking about. Paul is contrasting this quiet, godly, dignified life in direct contrast to the speculations and controversy and the quarreling and the shipwrecked faith of those who believed in the false teaching. Friends, a quiet life is to be preferred to a life of quarreling any day. A dignified life is to be preferred to a life of dissension any day. A godly life is to be preferred to a life of greed any day. A peaceful life is to be preferred to a life of perversion any day. So Paul says, pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, from politicians to preschool teachers, from brigadier generals to privates first class, from CEOs to interns, from graduating seniors to incoming freshmen, from Republicans to Democrats, from citizens to illegal aliens. Pray for all people, not just simply your people. 
In short, Paul is saying our prayers are to expand way beyond the horizon of our own lives. We have to be a broadly-minded people. After all, who is writing this letter to Timothy? Paul, the apostle to who? The Gentiles. Keep in context, friends, that you can see that the Jews receiving the gospel of Christ with, 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 with joy and zeal, seeing this as this is what the Old Testament had pointed to. The Messiah has come. We have seen him. He is the Christ. Yes, this is it. Wait, I don't want, to, I don't want the Gentiles to get this. This is good stuff. This is our inheritance. Forget them. Paul says, you are not thinking the way the Lord was thinking. God wants the gospel to spread to all people, even those Gentiles. In a sense, friends, let me use a, a term that, that may have some negative overtones because it's been stripped, it's stripped from a gospel worldview, but if you are a Christian, you are the first global citizen the world has ever thought about. You are the first global citizen because the gospel is calling out a new humanity from the old. Remember our study of Philippians when Paul said to the Philippian church, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why during our corporate prayers, we often pray for other churches as well as individuals. We pray for leaders of events and issues as much as we pray for Aunt Martha's knee surgery or Uncle Pete's back pain or your office promotion that's coming up. We want to have the focus that God has because this is good and this is pleasing to Him. So we want to make sure that we have the right focus. And that means a global focus, a local church with a global mindset. Now granted, because of our finitude, we have to chew, pick and choose. I spent two days uh, in South Bay with a couple of churches of a work that God is doing of our work in Japan. And as I led the devotion, I said, as we pray for Japan, let's remember what this passage is teaching us. We're going to pray for Japan because we're finite beings. We have to focus to be well, but let, we're, we're, we're focused because we're finite. But God cares for every nation. So as we pray for the nation of Japan, can I have someone pray for Brazil? Can I have someone pray for Africa, the continent of Africa? Can we say pray for Kenya? Can we pray for all people as much as we can, even though we're gathered here to think about Japan? See, that's the great thing. If we were of infinite ability, friends, we wouldn't have to pick and choose. We pick and choose because we're finite. God's not finite. And that's why the wisdom of the church we can all be a part of this, and maybe all of us can't go to Brazil, or all of us can't go to France, or all of us can't go to Kenya. We can pick and choose, but we can do it as a team effort. But in order to get there, we all have to be thinking this way. So our focus has to be broad. Now, what's the fuel of our prayers? You see in verse 3 and 4, Paul says, this, and that this is referring to our praying to all people so that things work the way they should, particularly with those who govern well, so that the church may flourish and do its work because as verse 4 tells us, God desires that all people be saved. God wants all prayers for all kinds of people because He wants all kinds of people saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is good and pleasing to Him. Friends, if you are a Christian, you can please God by praying the kinds of prayers that fuel gospel work. It's literally there in black and white. You want to please God? 
pray prayers that fuel gospel work. The universal concern of the first two verses, friends, is rooted in the universal desire of God for the gospel to spread. Friend, if you are not a Christian, you can please God as well by coming to the knowledge of the truth. We see that right in the passage as well. The reason we pray, the reason we pray is so that the gospel can spread. God says this is good and this is pleasing in His sight. The reason we pray is so that the gospel can spread because God's saving acts are not intended to be for one people, for one nation, the Jew. God's saving acts is for all of humanity that includes the world of the Jews, the Greeks, the Arabs, the Africans, the Asians, the Europeans. God wants everybody. So the focus of our prayers are the whole world, all people, and by that Paul means Every kind of individual out there, rich, poor, young, old, powerful, weak, black, white, red, yellow, everything in between, he wants them all. And the fuel of that prayer is the spread of the gospel that all people, all the hundreds and the thousands of different kinds of people can experience God's saving work. And that's, and that's not just God's eternal work of salvation that happens once we die, but God's current saving work, God's transforming work of us now. God wants that salvation to spread. He wants all people saved because He's God over all people. So, friends, at this point, it's probably a good idea for us to pause and take inventory about how our own prayers are going. How is our focus? How's our, our fuel? Or what's your priority? What's your perspective? And like I said, I don't want anyone to feel guilty, so I'm not going to ask. But I just want to encourage you by, by giving you some practical tips drawn just from our passage about how you can develop and work in your prayer life. So the first one... Um, Jesus kind of uh, served it up already. If, if you are a member of this church or if you are a member of a church, pray for the membership of that congregation. Pray that gospel work would increase, that they would increase in their love and understanding of truth and knowledge and knowledge of the truth. And, and one way to do that, we're, we're finally at a point where we're going public with these, but for the last two years, been trying to get the process down. Now that we're pretty good at receiving in members and releasing them out, Every time we do that, we publish uh, what we call a membership roster. I'm going to be very clear, this is not your typical church directory. There are no pictures in it. It does not look good on your coffee table. It's kind of cheap. It's made out of paper. And it's on purpose because every time we change our membership roster, we're going to update this so that we, are, we know who's the members that we're supposed to care for, the people we made promises together with. Who are they? And it's small. Guess why? So it fits right in your Bible. Friends, can I tell you, there isn't a week, there's a good chance probably a day, I mean, I can't be 100% sure, but there is not a, a day or a week that goes by that I'm not praying through this booklet. There is not a week that, does, that goes by this church where the elders are not scurrying through, writing notes, and praying for people. Now, our more organized, systematic elders, they, they kind of go alphabetically. The, the rest of us just kind of popcorn it. We just go back and forth, flip and, and pray for our people. The point is, it's designed for one purpose. There's no pictures. There's no, nothing but your names and a place where I can write my notes. This is a brand new one because we just did our, our congregational meeting, so it's freshly minted, and I start writing in notes. If you are a member, grab one of these. 
We're going to start doing them regularly. Grab one. Pray over these people. Pray for gospel work to happen in their lives, that they come to the knowledge of the truth increasingly. Number two, get in touch with a missionary of our church or the church you attend. That We've got, uh, I think we're supporting 14. Uh, there's four or five of them that are, are members of our church. Pray for them. Get on their newsletter. Pray at dinner time around the dinner table with your kids. Print out one of their newsletters and pray for their needs. Pray for the governments that they are, or the countries, openness to the gospel. Pray that their faith and their hope is sustained as they give all that they can in a place that is very unfamiliar. They need that. Some of our missionaries, they don't have churches. They went there to start churches. They don't have rich fellowship like we have. Their children don't have Christian friends to hang out with. Pray for them. Third suggestion, read great prayers. If you're not good at praying, if you do not know how to pray, read prayers. Can I just dispel this crazy notion that floats around the church sometimes? It goes like this. A prayer that is read is a prayer that is dead. Okay? I have heard my fair share of spontaneous, meaningless prayers. Okay? I'm just going to be honest. Sometimes well-thought-out prayers are worth praying, even if they're someone else's. Just personalize it. God's okay, right? At our last Lord's Supper service in early January, Greg Craycraft gave out a bunch of books, The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. You want to know how to pray? Read the Puritans. Friends, they have prayers about going to sleep. I mean, who here prayed about going to sleep before? Nobody, right? I mean, very few of us. The Puritans prayed about everything. Read their prayers. Learn how to pray like they prayed. Read good books about prayer, friends. We have some in the book spot. Right now, I'm reading um, Timothy Keller's book on prayer, experiencing awe and intimacy with God, because that's hard for me. I'm a type A personality, high D disc assessment kind of a guy. that is hard, and I need to constantly be working on that. So I'm reading this book this year. I just I read uh, Praying with Paul a few years ago. I recommended it to one of our praying women's group, and, and they love it. Learn to pray. Build this skill. Can I, can, can I just say this? This is, this is a freebie. It has nothing to do with my notes. You read through the Gospels, and notice how when Jesus does miracles, raises the dead, gives sight to the blind, casts out demons, tells the ocean to to calm down. Does he break a sweat? Nope. But I find it interesting that whenever we read about Jesus praying in the New Testament, terms like striving, pressed in, laboring appear. I mean, Jesus tells the ocean to chill, and he doesn't even break a sweat. But when he's praying, it always describes him laboring at it. That alone is instructive to us, friends. So read books, learn to pray. Moms, dads, take advantage. Our, our children's ministry has this thing called, it's called a Father's Guide to Blessing His Children. When I started it, all they had was index cards, but now they have cool apps. But all it is are cards. Or this one's actually in a book, so maybe you can make your own index cards or bring out the app. And every night before my kids would go to bed, i put my hand on their head, and I would just pray some of the prayers of the Bible. And they've kind of personalized it so it, it flows a little bit easier. But what a blessing to pray the prophets, pray the wisdom literature, pray the king's prayers from the Chronicles and the book of Kings, to remind my children that there is a heritage we are drawing from before they go to bed. It's one of the most tender, wonderful discipling moments you can have if you're a mom, dad, if you're grandma, grandpa, do the same. 
Grow, do what you can to grow in prayer. Friends, one thing that Paul makes clear here to Timothy is that our prayers are much more, much, much more than a spiritual self-enrichment plan, right? In fact, what I want you to see is that prayer is our way to participate in God's sovereign redemptive plan. So, so for example, friends, it really is fine to pray about someone's arthritis pain, but it's far better to pray that they learn to suffer well so that they might display the grace of God in a world that doesn't know how to suffer and avoids it at all costs. It's, it's fine to pray about someone's promotion or an upcoming job interview, but it's far better to pray that their hope in God increases regardless of career advancement. Friends, it is fine to pray about finding a spouse, a better rental situation, affording a nice vacation, but it's better by far to pray that you see Christ as your ultimate satisfaction above all those things. Friends, if we are, as Timothy or Paul says in Timothy 3.15, the buttress and pillar of truth for the world, then at the fundamental level of our prayers... We have got to have this missional, redemptive perspective and thrust, or we're going to do the world no good. We're just another religious organization taking up space in Laguna Hills. But if we have this missional, redemptive understanding at the most fundamental level, it's going to be bleeding out everywhere. How exciting. How exciting. Finally, finally, the reason... Uh, the reason that this gospel message can be so inclusive, right, so world-encompassing in its offer of who can be saved is because, ironically, the gospel message is so exclusive of how one can be saved. And that's Paul's next point here in verses 5 through 6 in, uh, in our, as we wrap up. Paul says, verse 5, for there's one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So, little Bible study tip. Most times when you see a, a four, um, Paul is, or the writer is giving you the argument for what he just put. And we see that here. The engine of verses one through four is found in verse five because he tells us, for there's one God and one mediator. The reason we need to pray with a global mindset and get, get out from ourselves is because we are on a global mission. That includes you, but it transcends you. It includes me. It includes my kids. It includes my family, but it transcends them. And I have to show that in the way I pray and the way I lead. Friends, the church is a church for all people. It's because there is no other way. The church is the pillar and the buttress of the message of the gospel, and there's no other way to be reconciled to God except through the gospel. Notice what Paul, in verse 5 here, he's quoting the great Jewish Shema, right, from um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one, not simply in preeminence, but one, as in singular, in existence. That's that concept there. There is no other salvation game in town, friends, because there is no other. This is what the Scripture teaches us. This is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first 
and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Just a couple chapters earlier, he writes this, or says this, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Why? That you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. God the Father made that clear in the Old Testament. God the Son says the exact same thing in the New, Revelation twenty-two thirteen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus says, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is saying the exact same thing God the Father says in the Old Testament. God has got the market on salvation because He's the only Savior. He is one in preeminence and one in existence. But the good news is His offer is good for all because this mediator could represent both parties, God and humanity. Jesus being divine and human was the only one who could represent both. So whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever you've done, you can come, but you must come through the Son because Jesus is the only one who can represent the divine and the human. That is why He is the one mediator for all. Friends, this is why the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ are at the crux of the Christian faith because a mediator must be able to represent both parties equally without, uh, without uh, favoring one or it can't be a mediation. So if he was just God, he cannot represent us. If he's just us, he cannot represent God. He had to be both God-man. And you can see the, the early controversies that they didn't believe he was human because Paul stresses that. The man, Jesus Christ, they believed he was some kind of emanation or something. So he makes it clear, no, 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 he represents us. And the God-man. This is why all roads don't lead to God because all roads don't have a mediator. Only Jesus Christ. Friends, if, if, if I could just tease out some of the implications of why this gospel message, this kind of inclusiveness and simultaneous exclusiveness is so important because our culture, our world is struggling with this. Not just in terms of, the, the gospel is important, not just in terms of our eternal salvation, but how we understand our current situation. Do you realize if you get what Paul's talking about here, among other things, there is no room for racism or nationalism if you understand the gospel. You see, the reason our society is falling apart with identity politics is because they've abandoned the meta-narrative. So they have nothing above to stand or ground themselves in other than the things that they identify with, whether it's their race, their ethnicity, their nationality, their sexuality. The reason as a Christian we can be free from all that is that I have an identity that transcends all the things of this world that will go away. I'm an image bearer, a citizen of an eternal kingdom. It's not about being Japanese, American, Indian, Scottish, Dutch, American, or all that other stuff, male, all that other stuff. So you can say what you want. You can make a big deal out of that. It doesn't matter. If you are a Christian, your identity is you are an image bearer, a citizen of an eternal kingdom. All this other stuff doesn't matter in the sense of your sense of value and how you live your life. Because in the gospel, the gospel makes racism important because, or it, 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 impossible, 
because it says that there are no distinctions at the cross. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Now, Paul was not naive in saying, there's no such thing as the Jewish culture or the Greek culture. There's no such thing as these economic disparities as in slave and master. There's no gender. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that all those things are earthly-bound distinctions, but when it comes to salvation, when it comes to what matters, everyone's equal at the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, he's saying the same kind of thing, but categorizing it as in the Jew and Gentile, the great divide. And look what he says, by abolishing these laws of commandments expressed in ordinances, speaking of the law that actually separated them, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. There are no distinctions we are all part of what, what God is doing in Christ. And we come from all nations. There is no room for nationalism either. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You might recall that's exactly the same phrase Paul used in 1 Timothy 3.15, the household of God. My nationality is a, a wonderful thing. I'm embedded in a cultural context as an American, but my citizenship, my true, the one that matters, the one I'll go to the mat for, is of that kingdom. And if you are a Christian, that should be your true allegiance, not to this nation or any nation more than that nation. Because in that nation, according to Revelations 5, 9, and they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, speaking of Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, it's only when you really understand the gospel that you can see and value things about your own ethnicity, your own nationality, but not make an idol of it. You can affirm the ways it, it aligns itself with God and celebrate that, and you can confront the ways it falls short and be a prophetic voice. Without a firm grasp of the gospel, what you're seeing is people are making idols and identities out of all these things that do not matter, and they can never get along. The unity of God is the only thing that helps us make sense of the community that's possible in human diversity. And we as a church have to have this global ecclesiastical, universal mindset while we are embedded in this time and this place. We cannot forget one or other of those two realities. If the church is going to be the pillar and buttress of truth, it begins, friends, by seeing our role as far more than for me or my tribe, my community, my friends, even my family and seeing the larger plan of God for us. We are part of a larger we called the church. And it begins, according to Paul, first of all, in a very mundane and kind of routine thing, so we might be tended to, we might think to ignore it or don't think it's that important. How important the simple things can be. Friends, I ask you, examine your prayers this week. Examine your prayers. Are they limited by your own personal horizon, or do they expand to taking the vista of God's redemptive work for humanity and creation? Are they fueled by gospel-driven priorities, or are they fueled exclusively by personal preferences? Are they pleasing to God? Friends, 
If your prayers are not limited by your own horizon, and they're taking in what God is trying to do in humanity and creation, if your prayers are fueled by gospel priorities, you want to see the gospel working, not just overseas, but in the lives of someone over pews, they'll be pleasing to God. How we pray, what we pray for, just like what we teach and who does the teaching, these things matter if we're going to be the pillar and buttress of the truth as God intended. We'll learn more about that next week. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.